2 Kings 7, verse number 3. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter into the city, the famine is in the city, and we'll die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. Those are the bad guys. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. When these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank. And they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. I'm going to leave off reading there. It's kind of a strange passage of Scripture. I've already told you there's not going to be a lot of theology in this message. The things that were written in ancient times were written for our learning. They're written in such a way to instruct our soul in a time and a culture that's very different than we just read about. But I'm going to promise you something. You and I are actually in this passage. We're there by representation probably in a couple of different characters, but the ones I want to focus on today are these four lepers. And I don't mean to insult anyone. I don't want to, you know, stick a, a, a pen in your balloon of your pride, but um, you're the leper. You're welcome. I'm the leper. Let's just own it. And I'll explain it in a moment. What do, we want to, what do we want to discuss when we're talking about being people of release and becoming as a family, the kingdom of God, the, the big C church, and more specifically, this community? What does it look like to become a culture of release? Well, I think there are a couple of things that are extremely important, essential. If you're going to become a Christian who's living a life of release, and if we're going to become a, a family that's living a life of release, if I'm going to be a Jesus follower that is living a life of release, there's something that's got to shift inside of us in order for that to happen. And I think we can walk through the whole process right here by viewing these four lepers and what God did. But to make it real, I have to take you back one chapter in my first point. I want to look at the city that was condemned to die. We're talking about the city of Samaria. And this was a city... 100% on death row. 
They were condemned to die. It's Samaria. It is the capital of the northern kingdom in Israel, and it is surrounded, besieged is the word, by the Syrian army. Ben-Hadad had come up against the people of God and had cut off Samaria, surrounding it completely, so that what was going on in the inside was death by slow starvation, a miserable way to die. And so in verse 24 of chapter 6, this is what it says. Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went and besieged Syria. So Ben-Hadad and the Aram would have been the ancient name of this culture here called Syria. The Aramites were coming around and Ben-Hadad said, I'm sick of those Jews. I hate them. They've got the prophet Elisha. He's been a thorn in our flesh. We can't win this time. I'm not going to half-step it. I want every single military man to take his position. We're going up as one. We're going to surround Samaria. We're going to cut them off. Nobody will come in. Nobody will go out. No food will enter. No commerce will take place in the gates. We're going to kill them, and we're going to make them suffer as we do it. By the way, that's the way our enemy works. We, we like to think that the devil is something other than what he is, but I'm going to tell you, there is no mercy, there is no compassion, there is no love, there is no fondness, there's nothing in the enemy nor any of his demons that prevents him from taking great diabolical delight in watching us suffer, and then at the end, he wants to kill, steal, kill, and destroy. That's the way he's working in our lives, and if it weren't for the grace of God, he would have his way in every one of our lives, and that's what was happening to ancient Israel. They were starving to death. Some of this is a little grotesque, so just bear with me. But in verse 25, it says this. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it. And this was so severe that it says a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's, dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now, Hold your lunch for a minute. This is a little nasty. But they're talking about so bad was the famine and the people starving to death that things in more prosperous times that they never would have considered as food became delicacies. And, ex and a matter of fact, expensive delicacies. Uh, donkeys never would have been eaten in times before the famine, before the besieging by the enemy. But it had gone on so long and all the normal food resources were gone. And so they not only began to eat the body of the donkey, but when the body of the donkey was gone, people were starting to eat on the heads of the donkey. Forgive the, it's kind of a gross description there, but not as gross as the next part. The next part says literally, and just let your Bible say what it says. I've, I read some guys this week that made this not want to be what it is. They were like, well, this is an ancient description for cornmeal pressed into a... No, 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 no. The Bible says it was bird poo. It's what it says. And it says people were starving, and the people that happened to have enough money would give six months' salary. I did the math here and did kind of the comparison to modern, uh, ancient, uh, monetary, and, and normal. Six months of salary for a half liter of bird poo to eat. It's nasty. I get it. But it's in the Bible. And the reason why it's in the Bible is because we, we are being set up to be shocked by the condemnation of death that was hanging over the city. That's how bad it had gotten. But I'm going to tell you, it actually gets worse. Because in 2 Kings 6, we find a lawsuit that comes before the king in verses 26 through 29. Now, just listen to this and, and let your Bible speak. 
As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, this is in Samaria, a woman cried out to him saying, help me, O Lord, my king. And he said, if Yahweh will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? Verse 28, the king asked her, what is your trouble? She answered, this woman said to me, give me your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled or broiled my son and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But O king, she won't produce her son. She's hidden her son. We're shocked by this and we're meant to be shocked by it. And it was no less shocking in the day of Israel, but it was their reality. And so you have two mothers doing the unthinkable, taking a baby that was probably itself dying of starvation And because the mothers could not take care of the baby and they also were dying of starvation, this survival instinct overrode the maternal instinct somehow. And the survival instinct said, we will exchange our children. And so that horrific reality took place. And yet on the second day, the mother who had slain and broiled and eaten her son with this other woman Uh, she was complaining and protest saying she won't produce her baby that we can eat it. Now, let me pause here, and the story's going to get better. I know this is intense and it's a little rough, but this is, again, what, what, what captivity looks like. It's a picture of what a life looks like and what life can come to when the enemy has full control and somebody is trapped in this condemnation of death hanging over an entire people group to the extent that these two mothers now are, are, are doing the unthinkable. And, and this one mother is feeling the injustice of the other mother coming against her. The injustice is we can't eat her baby. She's more alarmed at the perceived injustice of not being able to eat the other woman's baby than she is of her own sins of eating her baby. And that's the, way, that's the way depraved people act, by the way. And I'm not talking about somebody else. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about in our depravity. We see what's wrong with the other person's doing, and we are innocent feeling about what we have done. So it's in essence, it's saying your depravity is way worse than my depravity. To the extent where this woman brings before the king this cry of injustice, and the, the whole thing is unjust. And yet she's blind to her own injustice because of the injustice being done to her. And so what we've got in the city is the condemnation to death. There's nothing pretty going on in Samaria, but that is not the end of the story. And let me tell you why. Because there's a prophet of God in Israel named Elisha, and he's got a word from the Lord. And when things get as bleak as as possible, when there is no hope, and there was no hope, if God did not intervene, they perish. And yet God does intervene in the, on behalf of Israel who had so far backslidden on him and apostatized toward him. By the way, they were receiving, they were reaping what they had sowed in this besieging of Samaria. And yet God, even in the midst of his discipline and allowing things to get as bad as they could get for Israel, God comes with a word and he says to Elisha the prophet, he says, I want you to release this word. And so let's look at that in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. This city condemned to die had within it one believer who was anchored in hope, one representative of Yahweh who had not been moved by what he saw going on around him, had not been moved off point, but was still hearing the voice of the Lord, 
was still listening for what God was saying, though all of culture was filled with chaos and death and, and, and depravity going on all around him, Elisha was not moved. He was still listening for a word from the Lord. It's the way you and I need to be, by the way. It doesn't take 15 spiritual gifts to look at our culture and say what's wrong with it. It takes some spiritual gifts to look at what's wrong with the culture and say, but the Lord has a better word. I hear what the politicians are saying. I hear what the culture is saying. I hear what the classes are saying. I I hear all of the chaos and the roar of depravity coming up from the corruption of our culture. I hear all of that, but that's not what I'm listening to. I can't help what I hear, but I can gauge what I listen to. And so Elisha represents the one I want to be in this passage. Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Very quickly here, I told you this was provoking you unto love and good works. And I would just want, I want to say this. Folks, we need multiple voices of consecration and conviction that when every is sending their messaging. Everybody else is putting on volume 20 their messaging. We need some people to rise up in the body of Christ and say, I've got a word from the Lord on this. I've got a passage of scripture on this. I've got a principle from the eternal writ on this. God has spoken to this, and I want this word to be louder in my heart and in the hearts of those I love. I want this word to be louder ringing in your spiritual ears than everything else that's begging for your attention. And so I'm asking the question, where is your voice? Where is your, it's not an accusation. It's supposed to be a motivation. I'm saying, do you have Jesus? Then you have a voice. Are you saved? Then you have a voice. Do you have a Bible? Then you have a voice. Do you have a desire not only to decry what's wrong, but do you have the faith to get in the presence of the Lord and find out what the right answer is? We don't need more people pointing out the problem. We have become a minor chord choir of people expressing what's wrong, and the church of the living God has gone silent on what to do about these things. And Elisha says, Hear the word of the Lord, thus Says the Lord, and I want to tell you, this was about as bold and specific and put your neck on the line of a prophetic word than you'll find anywhere in the Old Testament. Look at the next word in verse number one in the second half. Tomorrow, tomorrow, about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Now, let's not get lost in all the seahs and shackles here. Let's think. Remember, there's no food. They're eating things that are unmentionable. They're living a level of hopelessness that is impossible to deny. Every metric, every visible sign, every prognostication, everything is pointing towards a certain doom. They know it's coming, but they don't know when it's coming because it's been taking a long time. And the man of God stands up and he says, this all stops tomorrow, thus says the Lord. He says, tomorrow, there's going to be basically a bakery here. We're going to have flour. We're going to have pastries. We're going to have food. And it's going to come on the cheap. (laughs) 
we, we had a prophecy seminar yesterday, awesome training. I, was, I wasn't able to be there, but I heard there was like 130 people from our community and from the community around that came and learned about prophecy. Let me tell you, I want to grow in the prophetic to the point where I don't flinch when God prompts me to say, in 24 hours, everything you're seeing is about to be completely, radically, and permanently reversed. <laughs> I love all sorts of prophetic words. I, I don't mind somebody giving me a vague prophetic word if it encourages me. But I'm telling you, this is of a totally different caliber. This is somebody saying, tomorrow, everything you're worried about is going to be reversed. Tomorrow, everything you've seen in the slow death process is going to be taken away. Tomorrow, every fear that you've been wrestling through and given yourself to is going to be 100% do a 180, and everything's going to be fine tomorrow. <laughs> I don't know why I like this so much. I guess because it's so rare, and I'm, I, I want that, man. By the way, what makes a prophetic word strong is the source, not the emotion behind it, not because you want to be Mr. or Mrs. Prophetess and, you know, you, you got to get your own YouTube channel and that kind of stuff. That, that's not what we're talking about. What I'm talking about is that I want to be so close to the Lord that he can trust me with a risky word like that. That he knows that when he's about to do something and turn things on a dime, he can look down and say, Jeff will say it. If I, if I can get Jeff to hear me, Jeff will say it. I want to be that guy. By the way, let me confess, I'm obviously not that guy because I've never get, given a tomorrow about this time everything changes word. But he's going to call some of you to do that. Some forerunners, some John the Baptist, some people that will look at the culture and say, yeah, I see how terrible this is. But please, don't put your hope in something that God may overturn in, in 10 months or four years or however long it is. Don't put your hope in an election. Don't put your hope in litigation. Don't put your hope in maintaining a national history and creatively rewriting parts of it. Don't put your hope in nationalism. Don't put your hope in any kind of patriotism. Don't put your hope there. Experience whatever degree you want to experience of that. But if it becomes your hope, it's an idol. And God is in the habit of trashing our idols. And so Elijah just, he's a, Elisha, he's just a cool prophet. Every, if, if you study the life of Elisha, he's, he's chill. He, is so, he gets thrown in hot situations, impossible to get out of. And, and I mean, he's surrounded by the army in a, ch a chapter earlier, and his servant is freaking. That's the Hebrew word, freaking. And, and, and he sees the army, and Elisha's just sitting there, and Elisha's like, oh. Look at this little dude. He is so troubled. He said, Lord, will you open his eyes so he can see what I see? And the Lord opens the servant's eyes and surrounding the army that is surrounding Elisha and the servant is the army of God and flaming chariots and everything. And Elisha's just, I just picture him like chewing gum saying, Lord, will you show this dude over here what you're showing me? He's just chill. And here he is again. He's like the whole, the whole place. I mean, they're doing horrible things. And he's saying this thing comes to an end in 24 hours. It's a message of hope. Friends, by the way, that's our message. Do we need to address wrongs in our culture and society and the church? Yeah. Yeah, we don't bury our head in the sands. That's not, that's not a spiritual gift to pretend that things that are aren't. But, but I'm telling you, rare is the Christian in these days that it can address the wrongs in the culture without being devoured by the wrongs in the culture. And I'll say this boldly. Guard your heart against getting bitter against the church. 
The church is blemished. The church is imperfect. But I give you a word of hope that there's coming a day when every blemish will be gone. Every wrinkle will be taken out. Every spot will be uh, taken away. And if Jesus puts up with the spotted parts of the church, surely you and I can put up with it. If Jesus hasn't given up, if Jesus hasn't flung his hands in the air, he's the one that paid everything for us to be righteous. And in this day, and as the heat's getting turned up, I'm telling you, you hear me on this. Some of you, Satan desires to sift you like wheat to separate you from the body of Christ because of the imperfections that you see. He'll even tell you that you're at a higher level of discernment as you walk away and disobey that same verse I quoted earlier. It says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. That's not a church attendance verse, by the way. It's not a verse about showing up on Sundays. That's a verse about remain with your people, the people of God. So this awesome message of hope comes out through Elisha. And then in verse number two, chapter seven, here's the opposition to the message of hope. Because if you're going to be a messenger of hope, (laughs) there's always somebody that's going to say, nah, nah, I don't believe that. And here he is. He's a bigwig. He's the captain on whose hand the king leaned. So he's, he's in tight with the king. And he says to Elisha, he says to the man of God, it's all sarcastic. If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this be? Could this word come to pass even if God opened up the windows today, poured out all of the rain necessary to produce all of the crops? Elisha, you're saying this thing's going to shift tomorrow. There's no way to bring in a harvest that hasn't been planted. You're putting a 24-hour deadline on this prophetic word. He says, I don't believe that for a second. So look what Elisha says. Again, he's chill. He's cool. He didn't get defensive. Who are you to disbelieve? I'm the man of God. I have a word from the Lord. I can't. He didn't say any of that. He said, you're going to see this with your own eyes, but you're not going to eat a thing. Shot block, boom. That's bold. Listen, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to stay on point here, but I'm, uh, I, I literally believe, I don't believe Elisha has anything that we're cut off from. I don't believe that Elisha, yes, he was God's prophet in Israel. But what I'm saying is I don't believe that Elisha had an access to God that you and I and Jesus Christ have less than. And he is saying right here, such a level of clarity. And I like it. He didn't get all puffed up and fiery. He just looks at the dude and he's like, oh, man, I really wish you hadn't said that. Because, like, it's an all-you-can-eat buffet beginning in 24 hours. And you're going to smell it, and you're going to see it for just a minute, but you're not going to be able to eat a single bite of what the Lord is providing. I'm reminded, um, 1 Thessalonians 5.20, despise not the prophetic word. Don't despise, don't reject, don't discount the prophetic word. I wonder, maybe, maybe not, when Paul wrote that, if he might have been thinking about this guy at the gate who despised the prophetic word and never got to taste the benefit that came from that prophetic word. If you're jaded on prophecy and if you're jaded on supernatural 
enlightenment and words of wisdom, spirit of wisdom and revelation, and you're jaded on it because you've seen 19 people in the last year that gave a word and it didn't come to pass. I, I just want to say something. I said this in a different way in the early service. We are not allowed to judge the validity of a doctrine based on how it is abused. So the fact that people abuse or misuse or sometimes innocently get prophetic words wrong, we're never entitled to say, yeah, that's an invalid gift. Because every single gifting in the kingdom has been and will be misused by somebody somewhere at some point. And if we start discounting valid gifts because they've been misused, then what's going to happen is we're going to be the guy at the city gate who says, I don't believe in that stuff. And the Lord says, I love you, but because you don't believe in it, you'll never get to taste what comes from it. And this would come to pass in this dude's life. By the way, I don't think we'll cover this. Maybe we will. I'll just give you a spoiler alert here. So when word got back to the people in Samaria that the Syrians had fled and they left their tents and their little Coleman ovens and, you know, potted stew and all the food out there, the people in the city said, food! And they blew through the city gates where dude was positioned and all he saw was the bottom of their feet. He died. He got trampled in his unbelief by the people that believed the word. I don't know how to apply that, but all I can say is this, I don't want to be that dude. I don't want to be the guy who not only misses what I could have had, but, but because of my unbelief, I die distant from what was promised to me. Are y'all following me? So now let's get to the happy stuff. So we got Elisha thundering, thus saith the Lord. It's all over in 24 hours. So watch this. Now we're going to shift to the people of release. This is amazing because the word's been given, but nobody has a clue how it's going to be fulfilled. They didn't have 1 Kings chapter 7. We already know how it's going to be filled, but they didn't. So you got 24 hours. So people are watching the clock. And somewhere before that 24 hours ends, the scene shifts to outside the city gates. And you've got these four guys. I call them a people delivered by grace. Let these four lepers represent me and you, my Christian friend. People delivered by grace. Dying, condemned, hopeless, diseased with sin like they were diseased with leprosy. Leprosy was fatal. There was no cure for it. It described many different types of skin diseases back in that day. But there was no cure and people died. And they usually died piece by piece. It's a really gross chapter, by the way. But it's, it's, it's in the Bible. And so the Bible says that there were four men who were lepers at the entrance of the gate. So they're outside of the city. It's pretty funny to me. And it's... Maybe, maybe not funny, but it's noteworthy to me that all these dying people on the inside of the city starving to death are still willing to exclude the lepers sitting outside the city gate. So they're following, that, you know, they're worshiping other gods. They're doing all this pagan idolatry for which God is judging them. But they're keeping some of the letter of the law because these filthy lepers aren't about to get inside the city. So they've got these four dudes, and they can't get in. They're not allowed. They're not allowed to mingle with people. That was part of the Mosaic law. And so it's just that typical, you know, we're not going to obey the law, but we're going to enforce the part of the law that pleases us. It's the essence of legalism. And so they're in there dying, and they're eating donkeys and unclean animals, and they've been worshiping other gods. But bless God, these lepers aren't getting on the inside of the city. 
So these lepers are out there, and, and what's interesting to me, it's actually their, their rejection that positions them to the closest, uh, positions them clo- more closely to the breakthrough that God's providing. Their rejection positioned them to be the first to experience the breakthrough that God was providing. Somebody in the room needs to hear that this morning. So these men were pondering. So here, here I like this. Oh, man, this is, I just love these dudes. They said to one another, so you got four lepers, they're out there, they got nothing else to do, they're talking to each other. And one of them says, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, well, the famine is in the cities, and we'll die there. If we sit here, we, we also die. So now come, let's go over to the camp of the Syrians, and if they spare our lives, hey, we shall live. And if they kill us, well, all we're going to do is die a little bit earlier than we're going to die anyway. I like this. This is, for for people that are thinkers, this is objective reasoning. This is facing the facts. This is a moment of clarity where you take control of your dilemma. (laughs) They've been sitting there dying day after day, piece by piece, they're rejected by all the other dying people. I just can't get past that. Like the people dying on the inside felt superior to the four guys dying on the outside. You're all dying. You're all condemned. It's just like uh, people. That's human nature. We're, we're a collective human population of sinners. Take away the fact that, yes, we're saved by grace, but collectively, pre-Jesus, we're a dying race of sinners who like to point out other sinners' sin. We're a bunch of dead people walking, pointing fingers at the dead person over there. We're a bunch of ghouls and goblins looking at other ghouls and goblins and saying, you are very ghoulish, thou goblin. That's what these guys are doing. So they're sitting out there on the, on the side, and they're like, I'm, I'm sick of dying day by day. You sick of dying day by day? Yeah, I've been sick of it. I was hoping you'd say something. Okay, well, I tell you what. I don't want to go in the city because they're all dead too, and they don't like us. So let's go over to the bad guys' camp. Worst thing that can happen is they execute us on the spot, and that'll actually be a relief. And so I, I love the fact that they're not necessarily optimistic, but they are realistic. And they objectively reason their way through the dilemma. And instead of sitting there while death finds them, they decide to get proactive. Praise God for proactive people. Amen. So verses 5 through 8. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. Here's where the getting gets good. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. Uh, I'm not expert at ancient military strategy, but I do understand a city being surrounded in ancient warfare, and everybody in the city knows it, and there's enough distance between the enemy and the actual city where the enemy's not at risk of being fired upon with arrows or anything from the people in the city. So they keep their distance, but they have it surrounded, so nothing can get in, nothing goes out. But these lepers have to walk out away, so they're literally risking life. And they're saying, we're just going to throw ourselves on the mercy of the one that is our enemy. And so they walk out there. And as they get to the very edge of the camp, they start noticing that nobody's there. There's no warriors. 
There's no noise. There's nobody there. There's no, there's no gatekeeper. There's no watcher. There's no scouts. There's no generals. There's nobody on the horses. The horses are there. The, the donkeys are there. The tents are all set up like they have been. But as they get there and they don't hear things, somebody peeks in a tent. Nobody there. They peek in another tent. Nobody there. And the Bible gives this declaration that what these four dying lepers stumbled upon is the absence of the enemy. And it's an amazing reality that you and I will encounter things that God has prepared ahead of time when we will boldly face the things we fear. If they hadn't moved out of fear and into risk, which is not the same thing. Some people, listen, some people say, well, if I don't move, I'm safer than if I do move. No, the fear owns you. Risk gives you the hope of deliverance. And so they faced the thing that they feared, and when they faced it, they actually found out the thing that they had feared had already been taken care of by the Lord. What happened? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verses 6 and 7. Here's what happened. The Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that the Syrians said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel is hired against us, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight. That was the same time the guys got up to leave, by the way. Notice that in verse uh, number five, it said they arose at twilight. Just so happened that was the exact moment when God caused the enemy to be dispelled. And so they arose at twilight, and they abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and they fled for their lives. Just very quickly here. Does your relationship with the Lord allow enough margin for God to do what never would have occurred to you? Does, it, does, your, does your belief system allow for the possibility that what is entirely impossible with you does not have God scratching his head this morning? We, I'm telling you, I know we believe this, but the hardest, oh, I'm preaching to Jeff right now. The hardest place to apply it is in your own life. It's easy to amen this because for us, it's theory. But for those guys, it wasn't theory. It was actuality. And when they got there, God, and God didn't announce what he was going to do ahead of time. Because we think, well, if God's going to do something, he's going to tell me ahead of time, and then I'll have faith. No, faith is, is necessary when God goes silent on you. And all the natural senses had been taking in was death, doom, destruction, the enemy. We're surrounded. We're dying. We're eating things we shouldn't have eaten. We're dead. It's just, and then Elisha comes up with this prophetic word, and, and we still haven't seen it manifest. And then when it gets down to the very 12th hour, the 11th hour, four lepers go out and find that God had abundantly done, exceeding abundantly above anything they asked or could have thought. So what are they going to do? Well, that's the rest of the chapter. When they got to the tents, find out, look at this, God, God provided for their immediate present need. When these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and they ate and drank. The first thing they did is they said, food, we have not had any food in a long time. We don't have anything to drink. And so they're moving in and whatever is in this tent, the first one they come to, was more than they had ever had. And at least since their leprosy had hit them. You've got the Syrian army with all of the food they would have had accessible to them. It would have felt like, you know, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse or whatever your favorite place is. And they just started throwing 
down. I am so stinking hungry right now. And they're drinking. So they're eating and drinking, not just for pleasure, but survival. But imagine these four guys, the rejects of Samaria, religiously ostracized, culturally ostracized, not welcome, dying. All they did was say, let's face our fears. Let's go out here. And when they faced their fears and made their way into the danger zone that they had perceived, they found out God had gotten to the danger zone ahead of time and had literally, miraculously caused the enemy army to hear things. I love that about the Lord. Listen, he made the eye, he made the ear. He made the eye to see, he made the ear to hear. A chapter earlier, he had dealt with the enemy by by messing with their eyesight. In this one, he messes with what they hear. And he calls them to hear, what, what is that? I mean, what is that? The whole army heard such a massive sound that it sounded like all of the Hittite kings and all of the Egyptian kings, that's a lot of people, were coming and storming upon them. They didn't see anything. It just says they heard it. And so in a nanosecond, fear filled the enemy, and the enemy took off and fled and left the camp as well. I love the Lord. I love him. Some of y'all are so occupied right now with your human opposition. And you know you're walking tight with the Lord, and you know your life belongs to the Lord, but you're getting opposed, and you're feeling like God's blessing your enemy, and God's not taking care of your business, and God seems to be ignoring what they're doing wrong. And meanwhile, you're going through your hardship and everything. Let me just tell you yet, the word, the timing of the word may not have come to pass yet. And, and if you panic before the timing of the word, you'll be consumed in your thoughts by your enemy and your opposition, and you'll miss what the Lord is doing. God has the ability to send your enemy at flight in a heartbeat. I've watched him do that. I, I can't, I'm not even allowed to testify, but I'm going to tell you, I've been in seasons where there was no way for me to win. And I knew I was towing the line in what God had said to do. I knew I was operating in obedience. I knew I had taken the risk. I knew that this opposition coming against me was not of the Lord and it was unjust, but they were winning every day. And there are moments like that when I say to myself, God, if you don't do something, I will. I said, Jeff, you're not spiritual. No, in those moments, I'm not spiritual. I'm desperate. God in his mercy had me hold my rank, stay in my battle array where I was appointed to stay, and wait and stand see to see the salvation, stand still to see the salvation of the Lord. God did that with these guys and sent the whole enemy army running, and they didn't even pack up their luggage. And so the lepers have walked into a preheated all-you-can-eat buffet. And so look, it says, look at, now watch us. Now let's, let's, I'm going to make it about me and you. Look at us in verse number eight. So they go into the second tent, and they carried off silver. Oh, this is still the first tent. Silver and gold and clothing, and went and hid it. Do you see what you did there? Look at you. Kid, why did you do that? You say, That's not me. Hold on now. If it's me, it can be you too. They see all of this treasure. These dudes were dying. And right behind the buffet is the safe. And the safe is open. And it's filled with gold and silver. At least one of these lepers still had arms and hands because he is, he is packing up the stuff. 
But look at what they did. They, they went and hid it. Orphan mentality. We've never had enough. We've never had anything of our own. I finally get something. I ain't about to share it with anybody because I've never had anything to call my own. I'm going to take it. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to hide it. Verse number eight tells us that it, it was their natural instinct. Then they came back and entered another tent. <laughs> Y'all are so pious. Y'all are looking at me like I would never do such a thing. And they carried off things from it and went and hid them. They're playing hide but don't seek. They want to hide it. They don't want anybody looking for it. Friends, let me just say this. This is the opposite of a culture of release. These guys have received the jackpot from God Almighty. Every present need, food and drink, every present need taken care of, every future need, gold and silver, now provided for. And their instinct is to say, mine, mine. Hide it from others that are dying and starving. Hide it from those that ostracized us and wouldn't let us in the city gates. Hide it from the ones that hurt us. It's the instinct. It's human nature. It's not pleasant. But listen, if we don't get real about our depravity, we will continue to undervalue our salvation. If we start thinking, eh, we weren't quite like that, my friend, let me just be bold. We were worse than that. If, if Paul the Apostle had said, I am the chief of sinners, don't give yourself a free pass. Yeah, I just hit a religious wall right there. The ones of you that hated that statement the most are the ones that need it the most. If you are underestimating your depravity apart from Jesus Christ, you will undervalue your deliverance from Jesus Christ. To the degree, Jesus said it this way, the one who is forgiven much loves much. The one who's forgiven only a little only loves a little. So the key to loving the Lord, one of the keys is always understand, seek to understand just how much you've been forgiven. And if we continue to say, well, I wasn't really that bad. I wasn't like... Jeff Lyle was. I wasn't like so-and-so was. Do you know what you're doing? You're exalting yourself and diminishing what Jesus had to do for you. And these guys were trying to get and keep. So let me get to the end of the passage. You're like, yeah, please do. Okay, I'm going to. They got convicted. I love this because this is also you. This is why I'm preaching this. Because, yes, you can act like they did in verse 8, but you're also, if you're saved, you're going to respond like they did in verses 9 and 10. They said to one another, hey, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news. And so they expected this discipline. They said, oh, our instinct is faulty. What are we doing? We have more than enough. We're taken care of. God has done something great. We are the recipients of a great blessing from the Lord. And here we are hiding it and hoarding it and keeping it to ourselves and being self-centered and self-focused and self-sufficient and self-providing and self-everything. Self this is wrong. We can't live like this. And, and so they said, this is the best day ever. This is awesome. We have all the food and all the clothing and all the material needs for not only for us, but the whole army is gone. There's tents everywhere. Here a tent, there a tent, everywhere a tent, tent. There's enough for everybody. It's an awesome thing when the Lord reorients your heart. Because listen, 
Sure, we can be selfish, but that's really not our identity in Jesus. We can slip, but we don't stay down. And so one of the joys in preaching this message is knowing that maybe some of you that have slipped into holding and hoarding and everything's got to be for you and about you and you just got into a season like that. You didn't mean to. You never intended to. But you're there right now because you've been hurt. Somebody set you outside the city gate and said, don't come back. You've been shunned. You've been culturally rejected. You've been uh, ecclesiastically rejected by the church. You've been wounded. I get it, man. I Listen, I don't, I'm not discompassionate to that. But what I'm saying is it's a double wound. When you take it and you go and you just say, no more for anybody else. It's, I got I to gotta be about me. And that's what they did. And then they repented. And they said, if we're silent and we wait until the morning, punishment will overtake us. They had enough of the fear of the Lord to say, this was a blessing from God. And if we don't do right by this thing, the Lord's not going to be happy with us. And then in verse 10, here it is. Now, therefore, here's the conclusion. Come. Let's go and tell the king's household. Let's go back to the city to all of the condemned, dying, hopeless, starving, helpless people who have no idea that God has taken care of their enemy. Let's go to them with the message of the good news and let's tell them that there is not only the enemy has been taken care of, but we have the spoils of the war that the Lord has won on our behalf. Not only are we delivered from the uh, Syrians, but we're also delivered and they left behind everything we're going to need for all of our immediate days moving forward. And they said, this is just too good to keep to ourselves. So verse 10 says, they came and they called to the gatekeepers of the city. And they told them, we came to the camp of the Syrians and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there. Nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Verse 11, the gatekeepers called out and it was told within the king's household. And then you get down to verse 16. Then the people went out. And they plundered the camp of the Syrians. I love it when the bad guys lose. So a sea, uh-oh, a sea, a fine flower. Man, that sounds familiar. Who talked about the sea of fine? Well, let's read on. Sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel. Hmm. And two seas of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Elisha's just kicking back. It's like, I don't know why you guys are surprised. I told you yesterday that this was going to happen. Take your time. Don't trample the dude in the gate. There's plenty for all of us that will be there. But the people went out, and they mowed through the city gates, and they went out from tent to tent, and every tent screamed and proclaimed the good news that the enemy has been defeated and that God has provided everything his people need. I'm going to invite the worship team to start making their way up, and I'm going to close out right here. We are a culture of release. We have been given so much graciously by the Lord. We have our eternity sealed through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you're in the room today and you've never surrendered to this glorious king who has defeated your enemy and sent the enemy scattering and has plundered their camp and has eternal inheritance and riches for you, And I don't mind telling you that. I'm telling you, that is the back end of the gospel. But you have to believe the word. You have to believe that King Jesus has taken care of the enemy, Satan and his demons. And the condemnation of your soul that was as real upon you as it was upon ancient Samaria, the condemnation of death. You have to believe the word of, of, and this represented by Elisha, but a greater than Elisha, King Jesus, who said that he came to destroy the works of the devil that you can come to him if you are heavy, burdened, 
laden with sins, laden with struggles, laden with fears, laden with worries, laden with a history, saddled up under the burden of who you've been, you can come to him because all that has been driving you to the ground, he has lifted up off of you through his blood and his sacrifice. But you have to believe the word. You have to say, Christos Kurios, Jesus Christ is Lord. You must confess him as the Lord of your life and not a lip confession, but a soul confession. You have to remember that what he's done, he didn't do just so we could admire it. He came and said, bow before me. Surrender yourself to me. I am Jesus Christ. I am God the Son. I'm the Son of God. I am high and holy in all authority, but I want you to know that I channeled all of that holiness and all of that height and all of that authority. I channeled it into my desire to save you from your sin. And so I laid it all down on a cross and I took your sin upon me and it came fully on me. I drank the entire cup. I don't want you to admire that. I want you to release yourself to that. And as people who have done that, most in the room have made that profession. Most of you in the room have said, Jesus Christ is Lord. Then here is the word to, from one leper to another. Don't hide the treasure. You see, the treasure is everything he's given you. The gospel, yes, share it. There's people dying all around our community, dying at work, dying at school, dying in their sins. You're going to have to risk it. You're going to have to actually maybe cross over into their territory. Maybe put your reputation on the line at work. Maybe put your status on the line at school. Maybe be risking being the weird Christian at the family reunion. But you go, you say, I'm not going to hide it anymore. I'm going to tell them the truth about my, my Savior. And then when we give our verbal treasure and we share the gospel and the message of hope, then there's the rest of our life, our resources, I prayed early, Lord, unclench our fists because it's so easy to live life with your fist clenched around all that you say belongs to you. Your time, listen, I love you, but your time, Jesus bought that. Your time is actually his. He gets to tell you what to do with your time. You can't clutch that. We do not well. We do not well. Your money, hallelujah. Nobody's swiping an ATM card in glory today. You know why? They don't need it. And we hoard our money down here, and in effect, we trust in it more than we trust in God. Release it into the kingdom. Release it into the nations. Release it into your community. Release it to those that stand in need. Release, release, release. And your gifting and your ability, the way God has wired you and put you together, and then he saved you and invested the Holy Spirit into the tabernacle of your body. You are gifted, child of God. You're gifted. You have something to release into the kingdom. You. Once a leper, now an ambassador. Once, who, once a person who had no hand to reach out with, and yet through the restoration of the grace of God, you now have gospel hands. You can reach your life into other people's lives. We must be a culture of release. So it means serving. It means giving. It means sharing and doing life together and witnessing to come out of the personal cave to step towards that which you might have been afraid of, but it's there where God has prepared breakthrough for you. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet.